Well, before I get started, just, uh, you know, I had COVID recently, so still have some of the little effects going on. So if I, if I get into a coughing fit, hopefully that won't happen. Just bear with me. I brought some body armor here just in case. <laughs> Well, so back in March of last year, I preached a sermon on anxiety. And after delivering that sermon, I had thought about doing a follow-up on the topic of contentment. But for whatever reason, I didn't go that route. I, I got to preach back in August and went a different route, I think on resurrection and some things. And so I've been thinking ever since then that I would like to come back to this topic and hit on it. I've especially been thinking about the issue of contentment here lately in light of a lot of recent events that have taken place with, with the family, most notably Amanda's brain surgery. And for those that don't know, just quickly, you know, one Sunday night she was walking down the hallway at the house, this massive headache, the worst she's ever had, just hit her out of nowhere. Jordan took her to urgent care the next day, and they're like, well, we don't expect anything too, or suspect anything too serious. We'll send you home with some meds for your headache, and we'll schedule a scan, but it's only going to be, it's going to be two weeks from now. So they just sent her home with some painkillers, and well, after realizing after a few days that the headache wasn't, I mean, it had gone down a little bit, but it was still persistent, and the pain was starting to travel down her back, her head, and down her spine. We decided to go to the ER, they did some scans, and they found a brain aneurysm on one side and blood on the polar opposite. So there was this big question about where that blood came from. Did it come from the aneurysm or from somewhere else? Well, we never did find out. We still will never know the answer to that. But after further scans of her head, we decided to do something about that bulge. And so she had surgery. During the aneurysm, the bulge busted. She came out of surgery with some stroke symptoms, whole right side went limp and couldn't talk. And after medicating that area of the brain a few times, uh, her strength started to improve. It's still not 100%. And her speech has slowly but surely gotten better, but she still struggles with that some. Well, if that wasn't enough, then she suffered a seizure four days after being discharged, which reversed some of the progress she had made and now she's looking at the possibility of taking seizure meds the rest of her life. So that was a pretty big deal. Uh, she hasn't been able to drive or go back to work. Her pocketbook took a little, little hit because of that. Life just simply not the same as it was before March. Well, then I get a call from Monroe saying, hey, Pastor Talbot's going to be out. We need, we need to fill in with preaching. I'm thinking to myself, all right, I planned on preaching on contentment, but now I'm wondering if I should touch on it because it's a little sensitive right now. I'm going through a lot of stuff, and I don't want to come across as being a little harsh or insensitive. I don't want to be up here and like, hey, I know you've been through a lot, but suck it up. You know? Oh, and then to add to that, Dave and the boys get in the car wreck. Some guy just smashes him from behind and beats up Stonewall pretty good. So again, I'm thinking, man, maybe I ought to just hold off on this for a little bit, let things settle down a little bit. 
But yet at the same time, I thought, well, I planned to talk on this issue for a while, even before all this stuff happened. And perhaps in the providence of God, this would be a great time to just touch on this and remind ourselves about a few things. And so after thinking about it some more, I decided to stick to the plan. So with that said, today I want to talk a little bit about contentment. Now, if you have ever read works like Jeremiah Burroughs' uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I've read probably half of, or Thomas Watson's The Art of Divine Contentment, you'd know that there is a lot of stuff that can be said on this issue. Watson's book's over 100 pages. I think Burroughs is 230 or something like that. But what I don't want to do today is cram in a ton of points in a single sermon spending little time on any of the points because you'll probably end up forgetting most of them. So instead, I thought it'd be better just to focus on just a couple of things. A lot of this is not going to be new to any of you. You've been at this church long enough. But again, I just think this is a good reminder. And perhaps, you know, I can extend this out to more sermons in the future. We'll see. But I think perhaps one of the most important things to consider is to define what exactly contentment is. And I got to tell you, I don't think defining it is, is, is as obvious of a task as some people may think that it is. I mean, for example, when you look at the word up in the modern English dictionary like Merriam-Webster's, it seems pretty simple and straightforward. It defines contentment as the quality or state of being contented. Just gotta love these modern dictionaries. What's contentment? It means to be content. Okay. What does it mean to be content? Well, let's look that up. Well, if you look that word up in Merriam-Webster, you find quote feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possession, status, or situation. All right. Well, that's a little better. At least we're getting somewhere. To be content is to be satisfied with your possessions, your status, your situation. But you know, that definition, at least for me, leaves much to be desired. I guess you could say I'm not content with that definition. I mean, when you read that definition, some questions that come to my mind are, okay, but why? Why do I need to be satisfied with what I own, my status, my situation? What is it grounded in? I mean, my wife just had brain surgery for crying out loud. Stonewall has, or perhaps doesn't, depending on which doctor you talk to, a fractured pelvis. What's there to be happy and satisfied about in that? See, that definition can't even begin to answer those questions. And you may be thinking, well, Jason, those are some philosophical questions, and it's, it's not the point of the dictionary to get that deep. You're asking too much of the dictionary. But is that really the case, though? I want you to listen to the original Webster Dictionary definition of contentment. Noah defined it back in 18, was it 28? Content is a resting or satisfaction of mind without disquiet. It is without a uh, disruption of peace. And then he uses this word, acquiescence. Now, that's fairly close to the modern definition. They both talk about being satisfied but then the original Webster goes on to use this word acquiescence. 
Now, there's a word you don't hear very often. And even though the modern Webster Dictionary didn't even use that word, just out of curiosity, I looked it up there and I found this. Acquiescence is, can you take a guess? The act of acquiescing. <laughs> or the state of being acquiescent. Well, duh. But thankfully, it does add a little more. Passive acceptance or submission. Okay. Well, how did the original Webster define acquiescence? He defined it as a quiet assent, a silent submission, or submission with apparent content, distinguished from avowed consent on the one hand, and on the other, from opposition or open discontent, as an acquiescence in the decisions of a court or in the allotments of providence. Well, isn't that interesting? Here, Noah Webster specifically draws our attention to providence in explaining the meaning of acquiescence, which he used as a synonym for contentment. Now, I understand Webster brought up providence as an example of something to acquiesce in, so someone could argue that providence isn't a necessary component of acquiescence or contentment. I can see where you can argue that, but just out of curiosity, since I'm here, Let's look at the word providence in the original Webster Dictionary. Here's the third definition he gives of providence. In theology, it's the care and superintendence which God exercises over his creatures. He that acknowledges the creation and denies the providence himself involves himself in a palpable contradiction. For the same power which caused a thing to exist is necessary to continue its existence. Some persons admit a general providence, but deny a particular providence, not considering that a general providence consists of particulars. A belief in divine providence is a source of great consolation to good men. By divine providence, it is often understood God himself. So now he mentions the word consolation. He said a belief in divine providence is a source of great consolation to good men. And how to define consolation? It's comfort, alleviation of misery or distress of mind, refreshment of mind or spirits, a comparative degree of happiness in distress or misfortune, springing from any circumstance that abates the evil or supports and strengthens the mind as hope, joy, courage, and the like. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to see some dots connecting here with Noah and his original dictionary. He defined contentment as a resting or satisfaction of mind without disquiet, acquiescence. He then defines acquiescence as a quiet ascent, a silent submission, or submission with apparent content, and gives the example of being of acquiescing in the, the allotments of providence. And then providence in, in, in turn is defined as the care and superintendence which God exercises over his creatures. And that a belief in providence is a source of great consolation to good men. And then when you define consolation, he brings it back full circle, or back around. Consolation is comfort, alleviation of misery or distress of mind, refreshment of mind or spirits, a comparative degree of happiness and distress or misfortune. See, I just took the original Webster's Dictionary alone, and by following this little trail of words, starting with the word contentment, was able to piece together a definition of contentment that would include the doctrine of providence. In fact, given what Noah Webster said about providence, I don't see how you can even think about contentment divorced from providence. But that's Noah Webster. And as good as that dictionary is, it's not the word of God. 
But following that little trail of words certainly does raise an extremely important question in my mind, and that is, is the doctrine of God's providence a necessary element to contentment? Well, knowing what providence means, I can just tell you right off the bat, I think the answer is yes. Belief in God's providence, rightly understood, is absolutely essential to being content in this life. And I agree with Noah Webster that by divine providence is often understood God himself. It has to be. And why do I say that? Again, let's go back to our definitions. Contentment is resting or satisfaction of mind without disquiet. And if you throw in the modern dictionary definition, you can add feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possession, status, or situation. Well, ultimately, where or who determines a person's status? Ultimately, where do our possessions come from? Ultimately, where do our situations come from? Well, if you know the doctrine of providence, you know the answer to those questions. Our confession defines providence in chapter 5 as the following. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And this directing and governing of all creatures and their actions includes, paragraph 4, itself even to the first fall, and all other sins of angels and men, and that by not a bare permission, but such as had joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Question 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, How, or excuse me, what dost thou understand by the providence of God? And the answer the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, they all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's a good definition. All things, says the catechism. Not some things, not just the good things of life. All things, riches and poverty, health and sickness, brain aneurysms, strokes, seizures, cancer, fractured pelvises. All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Beloved, there's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as luck. These are words and ideas invented by unbelievers to escape the reality that it's God who upholds, governs, and orders all things to the praise of His glory. These are words invented by unbelievers to ignore the sovereignty of God. These are words invented by unbelievers to suggest that either there is no God 
Or if there is, he's certainly not interested in our lives. And yet scripture is abundantly clear that such is not the case. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, that is the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Psalm 135, verses 6 through 10, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all uh, deeps. It is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. It is he who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. In Jeremiah 5, starting in verse 21, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Psalm 145, starting in verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and give, and you give them their food in due season. You open their hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And then in Matthew 10, starting in verse 29, our Lord said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are you are of more value than many sparrows. Beloved, Jesus here states, and this, <clears throat> that from Christ there it just blows my mind every time I read it, states here that even the smallest and seemingly most insignificant creatures on this earth are ruled and governed by God and His providence. And you might say, well, I like sparrows. I don't think those little small birds are insignificant. All right, well, how about this? How about a single strand of hair on your head? Let that sink in for a moment. How seemingly insignificant is a single strand of hair on your head? I mean, I got hair falling off me all the time. And a lot of times I don't even know it. Unless I find it in my food or something. I mean, can you think of anything more seemingly insignificant than a single strand of hair on your head? And yet our Lord said that every single one of them are accounted for. Beloved, there's nothing that is left out of God's rule and care. Nothing. I've even heard some so-called Reformed people say, well, I definitely believe God is involved in the big stuff of life. But he's not going to be involved in all these tiny, minute things of life. Well, that's not what Jesus said. 
I mean, there's not much else out there that could be as minute and insignificant as a strand of hair on your head. And yet Jesus includes that in God's providential care. Psalm 147, verse 8 and 9. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. In Jonah, and I always, I always kind of crack up with this story because it's, it's kind of comical, but it's really kind of sad for Jonah because of his attitude. But we read in Jonah 4.6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And then in the very next verse, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. In verse 7, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. You see that God appointed, God ordained a plant to grow, and then he ordained a worm to attack that plant. And he does all this to call Job out, or Jonah out on his selfishness. Worms, plants, grass, clouds, lightning, tiny little birds worth half a penny, hair, what is left out? Nothing. I mean, if it, if it can include these things, hair for crying out loud, how much more does it include more significant things? Like your job situation, your health situation, your finance situation. You're going to tell me that even though God is concerned with every hair on your head, that somehow he was asleep or distracted? when you got news of a very serious health issue? That somehow that got past them? That somehow that's not included in all that he upholds, directs, and governs? Beloved, it just simply can't be. Not if we actually believe and embrace what the Word of God says to us. But also understand this, not only does his providence embrace all things, but it comes, in the words of our confession, out of the free and immutable counsel of his own will. Immutable means invariable, unalterable, not capable or susceptible, susceptible of change. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Again, we're back to those little insignificant little birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, 
And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Reformation here in Study Bible notes here, the command not to worry rests on the fact that God who created life and sustains all things is able and willing to provide for his children's material needs of food and clothing. And that confidence arises from a practical application of the doctrine of God's providential care. Beloved, no amount of worrying or anxiety is going to change his decree. No amount of worrying is going to alter his providence. Which of you, Christ asked, can add a single hour of life, or add a single hour to his span of life by worrying? And the answer is obvious, you can't. Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God has set your lifespan. It's fixed. And so being anxious about your life will do absolutely nothing to change that. So why do it? Why worry? It's pointless. Your anxiety doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't change anything. So what's the point in doing it? There is none. So we've been reminded of the providence of God that is upholding, directing, disposing, and governing embraces all creatures, actions, and things, and that it is according to the free and immutable counsel of his own will. It's unstoppable. It can't be hindered. Well, I suppose upon hearing that, though, a person may still be discontent over the circumstances of their life. You may think, okay, I get it. God is sovereign, powerful, but I'm still not happy about the way things are going. I mean, Jason, you just pointed out that God who makes the grass grow, and then you turn around and quote Jesus, said God's going to throw that grass in the oven. That don't make me feel too, too good. <laughs> well, if that's you, and I just want you to stop and consider that perhaps what's really going on on a deeper level in your life is the problem is you don't really trust God and you question His character. And this is why I like what Noah Webster said regarding providence. He didn't just say that providence is the care and superintendence which God exercises over His creatures, but he added, by divine providence is often understood God Himself. You see, you can't divorce providence from God himself, from his nature, from his character. It's a package deal. You call any aspect of this into question, you call all of it into question. For example, in Exodus 16, we read, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Providence. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know, that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. 
For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Eric Raymond writes, quote, God's providence extends to everything and you cannot thwart it. But what kind of God stands behind this providence? Is he good or is he malicious? How are we to understand our circumstances in light of who God is? These are key questions that must be answered before we can rest in the providence of God. In fact, doubting God's goodness is often a veiled symptom of discontentment. Like the wandering Israelites in the wilderness who can't connect the dots and see that grumbling about our circumstances is grumbling about God's character. And so we must know, remind ourselves that the Bible teaches us that in addition to being all-powerful, God is both wise and good. Our confession says it this way, God, the creator of all things, that the uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Psalm 119 starting in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Our confession references Genesis 45.7 when speaking of the wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy of God. I'm fairly certain we all know what's in Genesis 45. It's the story of Joseph. As Eric Raymond nicely sums up this story, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph's older brothers became jealous of him because of their father's favored treatment of him. Jacob had made him a special coat that Joseph, no doubt, proudly wore before his brothers. What's more, Joseph had a dream in which his brothers were all bowing down before him. And to make matters worse, he told his brothers about the dream. Well, this led to their plotting to kill him. But when cooler heads prevailed, they decided instead to sell him into slavery and tell their father that Joseph was tragically killed by an animal. Well, after all this plotting, Joseph ended up in Egypt where he was promoted through the ranks and became the lead guy behind Potiphar. Things were looking up for Joseph until the king's wife falsely accused Joseph of attempted rape after her failed efforts to seduce him. As a result, he was thrown into prison. And while there, he interpreted dreams for some other prisoners and made a name for having wisdom. Later, Pharaoh called on him for this same purpose. Joseph shined in the moment and was given great honor in Egypt. Well, meanwhile, there was a famine in the land, and Joseph's brothers all felt its impact. So they made their way down to Egypt to ask for food. And through a series of events, Joseph, while keeping his identity veiled to his brothers, provided for them and persuaded them all to come to Egypt. And at last, he revealed his true identity to his brothers, and they were gripped with fear 
of his revenge. But Joseph spoke something profound in reply. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see, asked Eric, the cord of doctrine of providence empowering this verse? God used all of the trouble that Joseph endured, even the malevolence of his brothers for God's glory and the people's good. Joseph understood it, he got it, but do we? What if God were to take away something that currently makes you happy? Like he took away Joseph's fancy coat and seat of honor. What if providence brought you to a pit? I'll even add to that. What if providence brought upon you a false accusation of rape? Would you then begin to question his goodness, his wisdom? And if so, why? Did his goodness and wisdom change? Did God's character change? Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. You see, God not only governs all things, verse 28, but for those who love God, he governs all things for their best interest, for their good. And notice, this doesn't exclude us from verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or even the sword or death. I mean, that pretty much covers it all, right? Oh, and don't forget Joseph, false accusation of rape and being thrown in the prison. And just in case you don't think this includes everything, just in case you might be tempted to think, well, this certainly does not include car accidents, brain injuries, COVID, or anything else you can think of. Paul says in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How? Why? How are we more than conquerors over all these things? How are we more than conquerors over car accidents brain bleeds, cancer, false accusations of rape, persecution, suffering, even death itself. Because, going back up to verse 28, all things work together. For what? For our good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, I get it. 
I mean, believe me, with the last couple of years I've had, I get how easy it could be it could be to watch something that's going on in your life and just scratch your head wondering, how does this fit in the plan? I, how does this, how, how could this possibly turn out for my good? But think about why we go that route in our minds. I think a major reason we do so is because of our ignorance. We, we don't know the future. You think Joseph knew that he was going to be exalted to vice regent of Egypt right after he was falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison? No, he had absolutely no idea where all that was going. God doesn't tell us everything. Nor would we even have the capacity to grasp it all, even if he did. But beloved, don't let your ignorance become a stumbling block. Don't let your ignorance be the source upon which you call God and his character into question. You need to settle in your mind that there are just going to be things that are going to happen that you may never fully end up knowing why they happened. And it's okay. Paul wrote in Romans 9, starting in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? For who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Beloved, Paul's telling you there, he's, he's telling you right there, you're not going to figure it all out. You're not going to fully know the mind of the Lord. There's going to be much that you will be ignorant of, and that's okay. But know this, verse 36, that everything has its origin in God the Creator. Everything is directed by Him, the Lord of all things. And everything will eventually display His glory as the ultimate purpose of all things. And if we throw in Romans 8, the displaying of His glory as the ultimate purpose works in conjunction with God doing what is absolutely best and good for you, for those of you who love him and are called by him. So I ask you, beloved, do you trust him today? Even in light of your ignorance, even though he has chosen not to reveal everything to us about why he's doing things in our life, as if we could even handle all that information. I mean, he's told us the ultimate things, right? He's told us the beginning and the end, if you will, and that everything in between is going to work together by his most wise, holy, and good counsel. Do you believe that? Do you embrace that? Well, I want to close with these words from Eric Raymond. After speaking of the ways we come to doubt God and in turn become discontent, he asked this. How do we counsel others and ourselves in such states? Well, we must remember the providence of God and the God of providence. That means remembering that God is upholding and governing all things. He is purposely involved in the details. So whatever happened, is happening, or will happen comes with divine sanction. What's more, Christians in particular should be encouraged to know that God's providence means he is working all things together for his glory and our good, Romans 8.28.
When I am discontent about the past, the present, or the future, I am bucking against God's rule, questioning his wisdom and doubting his love. If we are discontent, we must remember the comforting doctrine of God's providence. But we must also remember the God of providence. God is a good God who is as wise as he is in control. All too often we interpret God's character in light of our circumstances. When things are going well, we think that God is good and that he loves us. However, when things don't go our way, we often feel like God is unfair and doesn't want what is best for us. Restlessness ferments in our hearts, and before we know it, we are questioning his goodness. Have you felt this temptation? Instead of interpreting God's character in light of our circumstances, we must do the opposite and interpret our circumstances in light of God's character. We must take the thread of our situation and run it through the needle of God's character. This will assure us that even though our situation is difficult, and not that we would have chosen, God is nevertheless in full control and is absolutely good and powerfully directing this experience for his glory and for our good. There is no wasted hardships with God. Everything has a purpose. And finally, when considering God's providence, we must remember the chief display of providence, the cross of Christ. The ultimate medicine for our souls is the cross. It is the visine that removes the irritation from our eyes, from the eyes of our souls, and focuses our, our sight clearly upon the truth. The cross dramatizes what we deserve. We do not deserve mercy, but we get it. God intervened in our perennial party of selfishness and nailed our sins of the cross, Colossians 2.14. We can never clamor about what we deserve when we are standing in the shadow of the cross. The cross reminds us that Jesus got what we deserve, and we get what Jesus deserved. It's hard to complain when you remember that you deserve hell. But the cross also assures us that God can be trusted. Isn't this the central issue for us? Can you trust God? Well, stand again in the shadow of the cross and let the apostle, the apostle interpret it for you and apply it to your life's experiences. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8, 32. If you can trust God to take care of the big issues, sin and death, then you can certainly trust him to take care of you in the secondary matters everything else. Amen? Let's pray.